Let's turn for a little to the chapter we read in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. And if we could look again at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. <clears throat> As we know, people's reactions to different things vary incredibly. You can take it in the most uh, natural settings you can get. I know that in this part of the world you will get beautiful sunsets, seeing the sun sinking in the west, and sometimes these sunsets can be quite spectacular. Some people are blown away by them, and others don't even notice. They're almost oblivious. They don't have that sort of aesthetic or artistic eye that might appreciate these things. Same times, same sometimes with with music. Some people can be in rapture over a piece of music. And other people are closing their ears to the same thing. They're just, they just say, how on earth can anybody enjoy that? And that's, that's what life is like, that people react to different situations in different ways. And so it is to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that people react to the gospel in different ways. And that is certainly very true with regard to the the chapter that we have here tonight, where we see uh, different reactions to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christ divides. In fact, that's one of the things that he said, that uh, he would bring division. Now, you don't expect that in a sense, but that's exactly true. You'll see it in a home, where homes sometimes can become divided. You can see it in communities. You can see it in different places a division brought about by the gospel. And the thing is that the, the death of Jesus Christ is something that compels people either to take one side or another, of either accepting or of rejecting. In a sense, there is no middle ground. It's a, it's a, the cross causes division. It brings a separation. Either a person is in Christ, with Christ, accepting Christ, or else a person is out of Christ, rejecting Christ, away from Christ. And uh, although we know that the circumstances can change, the attitudes can change, and we know that it's true for ourselves, there was a day we rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. But then that changes. And we see, and that's what we're looking at tonight, we see the changes that took place on the cross and below the cross. Because we see different attitudes. We see different changes. And uh, it's quite amazing because even on the cross itself there was a change. Because we're told that, that uh, in the gospel narratives that those two that were put to death with Jesus that initially that they both attacked Jesus. They both mocked Jesus. They both, which is quite extraordinary. Normally you would expect people if you're going through something awful, if you're going through it, you, that all who are going through it would be together in it. But we find that those actually, the, the two, one on the left and one on the right, that they are actually siding with the mockers and the persecutors of Jesus. But of course it changes for one of them. 
one of those who was put to death saw the Lord opened his eyes he saw who was beside him and he saw it wasn't an ordinary man that's why he said Lord remember me when you come into your kingdom and it's just as we have here tonight it would be wonderful if there was anybody in here who came in tonight and I get out with Christ and before you went out tonight from here you had accepted Jesus Christ it happens like that doesn't always happen in that way, but it happens often. Uh, a friend of mine went to a service when the Reverend, well, he was latterly Professor Douglas Macmillan, and he was preaching in point at special services. And a friend that I had back then, and he was quite opposed to the gospel, didn't, it had nothing to do with it. And his, his wife was really, really interested, and she was seeking. And she pleaded with him to go with, that he would go to this, it was a midweek special services. And he said, there's no way he was going to go. But anyway, eventually he agreed, but he set down certain conditions. And there were five different places and events and things that she had to go with him in order that he would go to this one service. And he went dreading it and having no interest with him. In fact, he used to hide the car keys when his wife would tried to go to church on Sunday. And in that service, he came out a totally changed man. He was converted. His eyes were open, and he just, he took off, as it were, uh, just full of the Lord. So it happens. People can come in, and they can be changed there and then under the gospel. For a lot of people, it's a more, maybe a more gradual process of the light beginning to dawn in. But for some people, it can happen really quickly. And uh, it's very obvious that on the cross and below the cross things happened fairly quickly and it would be wonderful if that was to happen for somebody here tonight but we know that the as we said the cross divides and it tells us in the bible that for some people the cross is an offense some people are offended by the gospel and how can that be well very simply because People get are offended by being told that they're sinners. Because by nature, you see, we, we, we like to think that we're not too bad. And some people really take umbrage. And they say, how dare you tell me that I'm a sinner? That, I, that the way I am, as by nature, that God can't accept me. Do you mean to tell me, a decent, law-abiding citizen, that I, as I am, like this, that I'm lost? And a lot of people will take offence to the gospel. They find it offensive. And they say, I don't want to hear this. You see, the problem, the great problem we all have is a problem of self-righteousness, where we think that by our own efforts and by our own works, that somehow God will accept us. You know the phrase, it'll be all right in the night. Well, a lot of people have that with regard to the dealings with God. So a lot of people take offense. And then there's a lot of other people think the gospel's foolishness. The Bible tells us that for some it's an offense, for some it's a stumbling block, for some it's foolishness. That the Bible talks about the foolishness of preaching. And some people, when they hear, look at the gospel, hear the gospel, they think, that, that's... That's 
crazy. And uh, people have all kinds of different takes on it. They, they, they think, oh, that, uh, some prominent people have said that, they go, that, that Christianity is for losers. Because they look at the, 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 those that we follow, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they see, here's somebody at the age of 33 and he dies the worst death as is possible. The death reserved for criminals and slaves. And they just look at it from a human point of view and they say, how on earth, why on earth would you want to follow this? And then they look at this whole idea and they sort of say, what are you talking about? You're, you're asking us to believe things that we can't see? That your whole life is based on just something that you read that happened 2,000 years ago? Get a grip. We need something much more scientific, something that we can... So a lot, for a lot of people, the whole idea is foolishness. They dismiss it and they say, I'm what? I'm going to get involved in that. And you know, when you meet people who find the gospel offensive, and you f meet people who find the gospel foolishness, don't be upset. Because that's exactly what the Bible tells us. It's not something new. When, when the by inspiration the Bible was written and the different times that it was when we have a, the, our different books that were written that's how it was then and it's the same today so they say there's nothing new under heaven and that is, that is true so the, 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 the gospel is something that divides and here we have the the, while we say there are some that find offence and some find it foolish and so on, there are many who find it the most wonderful news in the world. And I know that for many, I don't know all of you in here, but I know quite a number of you. And for you, that I know that as believers, it was the greatest news you ever heard. And I hope and pray that it's for all of you the greatest news that you've ever heard. And can I say if there are any here tonight who haven't closed in with Christ, it's wonderful you've heard this news, but you've got to do more than just hear it. You've got to believe. But the, the beginning is hearing. That's the key. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So if you're not tonight a Christian, you're in the best place possible because you are hearing the word of God. This is the key to where faith starts. Because it says again in the Bible, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? You can't. So it is imperative that we hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important that you, having heard, that you lay hold upon the Lord Jesus and ask him to come into your heart. You know, it's, if there's anybody here without Jesus tonight, you might say to yourself, you know, I'd like to be a Christian, but I, I just find this, it's so difficult to get from here to there. I know I'm here, and I don't know how to get into the kingdom. You might be able to explain the gospel. If you came out of church and somebody passing by said, you know, what, are you a Christian? Uh, no, but I, I, I follow the Christian faith. So how do you become a Christian? Well, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You can tell them. Because you know. But you haven't come to that personal knowledge yourself. Because somehow you find it difficult to get to get to that place. And I understand that because 
I'm sure a lot of us went through that. How do we get from here to there? And I know I myself, I took a long time in understanding that salvation was an order that was about receiving. It's not about doing. The doing's all been done. It's about receiving. Receiving Jesus. Asking the Lord Jesus to come into our heart. And that salvation is a gift. A gift isn't something you earn. You don't work for a gift. You receive a gift. And that's what we do with salvation. We receive what God has done for us and what God gives to us. Now tonight I want to focus on the great declaration made by this Roman soldier at the foot of the cross. And as we know, the death of anybody is a very solemn moment. If you've ever been with anybody as they passed away, you know it's a very powerful moment. Like a birth into this world is a powerful moment. Death, when a soul leaves, when a person takes their last breath, it's one of these powerful, very emotional moments. These are probably the most power, some of the most powerful moments that can ever be experienced in life and I'm sure uh, you, you, you know what I'm talking about but here we have the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and it was, it was a powerful moment in the experience of the centurion and that's what's remarkable about it all now as we know Jesus hung on the cross for six hours and the moment, of course, had come for his death. And this was the moment that the Jewish leaders had longed for. They had so wanted him to die. And it's here we see their horrendous cruelty. Because they didn't want him just, say, hung. They didn't want him just beheaded. They wanted him to suffer. And that the death would be as long and as lingering and as painful and as cruel as could possibly be. And as we know that <clears throat> crucifixion, they said of those who were crucified, they died a thousand deaths. It was such an awful way to die. And of course, this is what the Jewish leaders wanted for the Lord Jesus Christ. But when Jesus breathed his last and he died, into the silence all round the cross, a voice rang out. A loud voice. And this was the cry of the centurion who said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And you would expect that statement maybe to have come from John, who had been at the cross with, with Jesus' mother, or one of the women, one of the other followers who were there. But it came from the man who was in charge of the execution. Now, this centurion would have been involved in many executions. And at that time, uh, death was a way of life. And many people were put to death. And, you know, that's part of the awful thing of, of how blasé and used to death people can become. For, the, for many of them, putting someone to death was no more than switching off a light. And uh, we know that with where there is darkness in this world, there is cruelty. We're told that in the Bible, that uh, there is cruelty in the dark places of this world. And where there is lack of gospel light, there will be darkness. And where there's darkness, there's cruelty. And there was a darkness around at that time, even although the light 
of Jesus had come, though many didn't recognize him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. So this centurion, he had seen he had seen multiple deaths. He had been involved in lots of deaths. He was in charge. He was the one who would have been put in charge of everything. And this centurion, he had seen the baying crowd and the way that they had treated Christ and how they had mocked him and how they had scourged him and ridiculed him and they, for being the claim that he had made to be the son of God. And I'm sure initially the centurion would be thinking to himself, well, if, if this man is the son of God... How on earth can this be happening? Because logically, if you looked at a situation and you saw someone being so mistreated by the religion, we're we're not talking about your ordinary people, we're talking about the elite religious leaders of the day, these people who held great sway. These were supposed to be men of God. And if they are saying, Here's this man who claims to be the Son of God, and they're treating him this way. You'd say to yourself, oh, well, that must be the, great, the worst imposter ever. What a rascal, what an awful person that must be. So maybe the centurion was thinking along these lines and saying, well, I've been ordered this. And because, remember, Roman law was extraordinarily, and a centurion was somebody who was set apart over many other soldiers. And a centurion was never below the age of 30. He was somebody who, who was literate. He was able to be able, he had to be able to read instructions, letters that were given to him. He had to be commended and, uh, by many others for that post. Somebody who was dedicated and loyal and somebody who led by example. So it wasn't a, a centurion was something that, it was a, a great post really to have. So the, here's this, this man, and he'd be saying to himself, this, this must be a, a really, really bad man. But you know, the thing about the centurion was that he was somebody, obviously, that was, was given to reflection because we find that he didn't stand amongst the crowd that were laughing and mocking, didn't stand amongst the other soldiers or sit with the soldiers who were, uh, as it were, gambling for Jesus's clothing he stood facing the cross he was obviously a man of reflection he was a man who observed a man who was watching and as he watched he saw things that he had never really seen before verse 39 tells us and when the centurion who stood facing him so here's the centurion the cross is here people below and people mingling all around but the centurion who's in charge he stood facing the cross. And he saw a death the like of which he had never seen before. Because he heard Jesus speak seven times. And the first thing would have, I'm sure, struck him. Because throughout his his profession and involved with many deaths, he would have heard, seen the reaction of victims who were being put to death. He would have seen fear and resignation and anger and all kinds of emotions but here's a man and he's praying for those who are putting him to death and he's asking God to forgive them and I'm sure the centurion is saying to himself that's unusual and then he was hearing this conversation on seven different occasions when Jesus 
speaks to his father. You never heard the like of this before. It was different. And there was a reality about the way that he spoke. And then he would have heard the conversation that went on on the cross, or a very brief conversation, because he was standing, remember, he's standing there all the time, and he's watching. And he saw these two criminals, one on either side, and they're mocking Jesus. They're turning in on him. And then one of them stops. And he then rebuked the other criminal. And he said to the other criminal, stop it. We deserve what we're getting. We're, this is a, the, the result of a, the type of life we've lived. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today, we, we know it, you shall be with me in paradise. The centurion, remember, is watching and he's hearing all this. And so, as it goes on, the picture is growing larger and larger. And then we read that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, the whole place was plunged into darkness. That's like from midday to three o'clock. It's like, I suppose you would almost see like a total eclipse. But the place was plunged into darkness. And of course, that darkness that took place there while there was a physical darkness, was symbolic of the darkness where Jesus had been plunged into. Because Jesus was experiencing God's wrath poured out against him for sin. He was experiencing the Father's forsakenness, something he had never, ever experienced ever in his life before. Because he and his Father were like that. All was one together. For the first time ever, there was silence from heaven. There was a sense of abandonment. A sense there would have been a sense of confusion, a sense of loneliness. And he was experiencing the wrath of God in his soul for our sin. And that, as we say, that darkness, while it was a real darkness, was also symbolic. And then at three o'clock, when it was all over, Jesus, we're told, as we take the Gospels together, Jesus breathed his last. But we're told that he gave a great shout when he, when, he, uh, when he died. When he had said, into your hands I com commit my spirit. And with the last, he gave a great cry. Now that would have really affected the centurion. Because the one thing that people who were crucified they could not do when they came to the end was to cry out loud because they were being suffocated and strangled bit by bit it was the most horrific way to die and they, they, it was humanly impossible to give a great cry so the centurion hears Jesus giving a cry and we know it was a cry of victory it is finished done it and so when the centurion hears all this witnesses what he saw witnesses the behavior the darkness and there are just so many manifestations of things he had never seen before into that darkness of that moment or into the silence of that moment 
when Jesus gives that cry and breathes his last, ringing out is the voice of the centurion. Truly, this was the Son of God. Some people say, I was just being cynical. No, not at all. When we, I think it's in Luke's account that he tells us that he praised God. So here is an answer straight away when Jesus prays while they're banging the nails into his hands. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The centurion in charge of the execution is the first recipient of the answer of that prayer. Where there he comes to realize that this truly is the Son of God. And he makes that, that great confession. And you know, that is so important in life, that we make the confession. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because we're told in the Bible that we believe in the heart and we confess with the mouth. And can I say to anybody in here tonight, to maybe, that you're following the Lord, but you know you've never really confessed. You've never made it public. You've kind of gone on quietly you love the Lord. You're what's termed a secret disciple. There are such things. They're secret disciples. They follow the Lord. But they're following kind of at a distance. Well, I wasn't intending to read uh, the last wee bit. I don't know why I didn't. That's why I did read it now. Because we find another great confession. In fact, there's two confessions. It doesn't mention him here, but if we go to John's Gospel, it tells us, because Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, you see, this man, uh, Joseph, uh, it tells us in John's Gospel, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Here's this man, Joseph. And he'd been a secret disciple. And there was another man came forward at that time as well, and that was Nicodemus. And because it tells us in John uh, 30, 39, John 19, verse, Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. So, out of the shadows came these two men who had been secret disciples. They had never nailed their colours to the mast. Remember how Nicodemus even came to see Jesus by night so nobody would see. And Joseph had never confessed or made public his love for Jesus, for fear of the Jews. And you know, I believe there's a lot of people like that who don't make public their love of Jesus for fear of other people. They're afraid of the reaction of people. What will people say? If I start coming out to the prayer meeting, if I made a public profession, people in the community would be talking about me and I can't cope with that. You see, we have, that's exactly the same. Same because uh, it uh, tells us again, I don't, can't remember in which gospel, that there were others amongst the Pharisees who believed in Jesus, but they never confessed him 
because they, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. In other words, they wanted to be highly thought of. They wanted their place, they wanted their position within the community. And they were afraid that if they took that step openly of confessing Christ, that they would lose what they had. So that's why the Bible says, look, it's one thing to believe in the heart, but you have to confess as well. And I want to challenge anybody here tonight who, who is, in the, is in that category of the secret disciple. And let me tell you, I know myself how hard it is to come out on the side of Christ. Because after I was converted, I never told anybody. I couldn't. I was scared to. And I know sometimes we can be scared to, for maybe right reasons, in the fact that we're afraid that if we begin, we'll go back and cause a disgrace on the cause. And we say, maybe I'll make a mess of everything. And so there can be that same side to it as well. But so often, it's just a fear of what people will say, what people will think, and we can't cope with it. But you know, the Lord will take you over all that. Trust Him. This is all part of the trust, part of the believing. Is put yourself in the hand of God, and He'll make He'll open the way for you. And He will make the difficult things easy. It's like when the women went to anoint Jesus and they were wondering, how can we do it? Who's going to take away the stone? When they went there, the stone had been taken away. You see, they went forward trembling, yes, but they went by faith. And the obstacle that they were afraid would be in the way was removed. You will find that very thing if you by faith will make that step to publicly confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord. And we pray that the example of this centurion will be because, you know, there's a conversation that doesn't tell us, but I would love to know what the conversation was because when Joseph, we read that, when Joseph went to ask for the body of Jesus, Pilate was really surprised to hear that Jesus had already died. And what did Pilate do? He summoned the centurion. And he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Jesus. Here's a conversation we, we don't know what, what took place. But I would love to think that the centurion said to, G, to Pilate, you know, remember what Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. It tells us here that Pilate knew that it was because of envy they had delivered him up. I hope the centurion who made that great declaration was able to say to Pilate, you know what? It was true. That was the Son of God. Not just was, but is the Son of God. So we don't know. We're not privy to what took place there. But you see, Jesus always has the last word. And although the enemies of Christ thought they had seen the last, what in fact was what they thought was the death knell of Christ in his cause was indeed what it, what, where it actually mushroomed up to where it is today. May we then believe in this Jesus and may we confess with our mouth that Jesus is our Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, O God, we, we give thanks for your word and we pray that 
that this word which we have heard and meditated on tonight may indeed be a blessing to our souls. We give thanks, Lord, for the way you lead us on, and we pray that we might witness a good profession, uh, that we might not be afraid uh, to confess that you are our Lord. I'm not ashamed to own my Lord or to defend his cause, as uh, the hymn writer said, and we pray that that spirit might indeed be in 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 ourselves too. Grant us your grace, then, we pray, and lead us in the way of truth, and forgive us our every sin in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>